Dotnet Rocks, episode 1269, with guest Gail Frateur. Recorded Thursday, February 18th, 2016. Hey, guess what? It's .NET Rocks all over again. How are you doing, Richard? I am well, sir. We're uh, what, we recording this in the middle of February for yep. publication middle of March, and uh, in this entire window, A, we're home. Right, yes. We're home for a few weeks. Yes. And B, uh, my basement's finally being rebuilt after the flooding a few months ago, so we've got new carpets picked out wow. and other flooring materials and i'm going i've ordering lumen cash hardware We're oh going good for, for you DC i lighting. can't wait it's happening yeah and the office is being a little redesigned well in my side of the world i've been on a ketogenic diet for 3 weeks now and that's yeah. going very well and i actually am starting a ketogenic podcast with richard morris oh, that's fun which you can find at 2 and that's the number 2 keto dudes so two keto dudes.com. And, uh, it does, as of this recording anyway, it doesn't have RSS. Uh, there's just one episode up there, probably two by now, but it does have Richard's story, my story, and, uh, the science explaining the ketogenic diet and links to scientific studies that sort of prove its effectiveness, especially for type two diabetics. And that's what I've been doing. So cool. Now that we got that out of the way, let's, uh, Roll the music for Better Know a Framework. Awesome. All right, buddy, what do you got? Uh, so, I've been building websites with vanilla.js and CSS really? and HTML. Yep. I built the Two Keto Dudes podcast, and I learned uh, a few things about um, responsive web design using CSS. And, um, you know, fonts that scale and images that scale and using the, the view as a unit instead of pixels, you know, VW, a one VW, yep. I think is one tenth of the view or one one hundredth of the, I can't remember what it is, but, but it's a measure of the view area, the viewport. So it's kind of a cool way to, to do things that work actually size wise. And in my, uh, I've also been doing some, uh, reporting websites for music to code by. And this is cool. I found a calendar, for lack of a better word, control, you know, all the good things you liked about the ASP.NET Web Forms calendar, except that it's an Ajax, gener you know, all, only CSS, JavaScript, and HTML version of that. So if you go to 1269.pwop.me, 1269 being the number of the show, Right. Pop dot me. You come to pick a day or pick a day. P I K A D A Y. That's yeah, a good pick, one. I like it. Pick a day. Pick a day. Yeah. Kind of sounds like you know whatever. Sounds like in a Japanese cartoon. Well, a pika is a kind of very small antelope, but or no, it's a it's a it's a rodent. It's a mountain rodent. Interesting. But nobody cares. <laughs> but what's cool about this is I thought it was going to be like major surgery to take that and just drop it into my page. No, no, no. You link to two CSS files and one JavaScript file. You basically create an input tag type text. And then you have one line of JavaScript that registers that item as a calendar and with nice. a few properties that you set. 
That's it. It's pretty awesome. That's cool. Yeah, yeah it's very simple. <laughs> yeah, very simple. And there's good demos, too. And, of course, it's free. It's on GitHub, like all good things. So, there you go. Know it, learn it, love it. Who's talking to us, Richard? Grabbed a comment off of show 640. You know, 620 shows ago. Oh, my God. It's still relevant? <laughs> <laughs> Which was the last time Gail was on. No. <laughs> oh, that's shameful. February of 2011. I mean, almost five years ago on the nose. Shameful. And that was really when we were talking about PostSharp and very much the aspect-oriented aspects of it which i i think there's a lot more to post sharp we've kind of done a disservice in that respect but yeah you know five years later things have changed but even five years ago there was a great comment that i think we should read in fact it, you read it and commented on it too carl <laughs> oddly you don't remember five years later uh this is from joe graf who says hey carl and richard i have to say that i've been using controller action filters for a little while now and couldn't help but think that they're very aspect like it was nice to hear your guests concur on that by creating some simple filters i'm able to add action logging just by adding an attribute to the controller if I want to see the number of users online, say for an intranet site, I have another attribute I can decorate the controller with that will keep track of that based on activities. Finally, we use a role security attribute, which we customized, that will redirect users to an access denied page if they're not allowed on that controller. Wow. These cool. are all things that can be added after the main work is done on the site. I love that because, you know, that kind of stuff is always an afterthought, right? <laughs> well, it also has to be tweaked too, right? Like the fact that you, you're not mixing that security behavior or the logging behavior into your main body code. So you have to search it all out. That right. is sitting there as attributes on a controller. It makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And more importantly, it made a lot of sense five years ago. <laughs> hey, Joe, it's taken us a long time to get to this comment. Thank you so much for being a listener. A .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at .NET .com or via any of our social media pages because we post every show to Facebook and Google+. And if you comment there, we'll send you a mug. And he'll get that mug, of course, if he still listens to the show or <laughs> his a different email address, perhaps. Yeah, hopefully his account's not dead. <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, who could blame him, right? Anyway, you can also follow us on Twitter. I'm at Carl Franklin. He's at Rich Campbell. Send us tweets. We use them for target practice. Okay. And now uh, let's welcome back to the show after all these years, Gail Frature. He's been passionately programming since childhood, building and selling his first commercial software at age 12. Wow. He is founder and CEO at PostSharp Technologies based in Prague, Czech Republic. Before moving to Prague, Gail spent the first 20 years of his life in Belgium. He is the father of five kids aged four to 11. Besides programming and parenting, Gail loves Baroque and classical music and teaches himself to play the piano. That explains why you're so brilliant, doesn't it? Uh -huh. <laughs> it's the piano. Yeah. It's all about the piano. Welcome, Gail. Oh, wait. Welcome and thank you to have me back. It's the third time, actually. Yeah, that's yep. right. It I'm was a couple show. of years yeah. ago. We had and the first time, I, I didn't check what when was the first time, but I remember it was the very beginning of PostSharp. Oh, wait a minute. It was the DNR TV, wasn't it? Uh, that was even before. Okay. And uh, most importantly, that was the beginning of the success of PostSharp because, mm. uh, you know, I'm very grateful to .NET Rocks to actually cause us, or yes, cause the success of PostSharp. Uh, I think it was 
seven or eight years ago that yeah. uh, that was really the yeah, start. Yeah, look them up. Of, there's a 298 uh, in December of 2007. And then 640 in February of 2011. So, you know, four or five years apart, 300 shows. Of course, we increased the rate of the shows. So mm. we should have had you on around 900, but we missed that one. So here we are at 1200 something. Right. And so, uh, Richard mentioned in the, uh, Richard mentioned in the, in while reading the comment that, uh, he was talking about the aspect oriented programming parts of post sharp, which is really what it, how it started. What is post sharp today? So PostSharp quite evolved from uh, from aspect oriented programming. Actually, um, we realized after uh, seven years of pitching aspect oriented programming that people didn't get it. So what we did, we 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 changed the way we pitch the product, but also we changed the way we think about the product. So now uh, instead of talking about concepts that almost require a PhD in computer science to understand. We, mm. we actually talk about what people understand. And people understand design patterns. So when developers uh, reason about software, uh, they, would, they would reason in terms of patterns. Um, you just say, okay, this, this class needs to have notify property change. This, all these classes of methods uh, need to have uh, transaction handling. Or this class is immutable. So you think in terms of patterns. But the problem is that the compiler does not have a pattern keyword. You have methods, you have fields, properties, you have classes, you don't have patterns. So what developers end up doing is to like write boilerplate code. They actually execute the pattern manually. You know, they are executing the implementation algorithm of, of the pattern manually. Uh, and they write this repetitive, boring code that right. costs a lot to the, to the employer. And so what we are proposing is to, is to say, well, well, if it is repetitive, it can be automated. Yes. And more importantly, sort of as Richard also alluded to in the comment or the commenter alluded to, you can sort of add things on and add features on to your app without muddying up your business logic, which is really the holy grail of object-oriented programming, isn't it? To to sort of keep it simple and to be able to follow the logic. And so that's why we have all these layers of abstraction in exactly. in classic o OOP stuff. But what you're saying is, no, you don't have to do all that stuff. Just, you know, tack on the stuff that you want and plug it in where it fits. Yeah, but so the, the holy grail of... Uh, of programming languages is to improve uh, separation of concerns, and um, so that you know the business logic is is better visible. And um, with uh, first aspect oriented programming, and now what what we are calling rather pattern aware languages, mm. uh, we are better able to separate the concerns and say here here is a definition of what like how I want I notify property change to be implemented. Here is the definition of that. And here I'm just telling, well, I want all my model classes to, to implement this pattern. I don't want to go into every single property setter or method like calling on property changed. Mm. I just want this to be done by the compiler because this is such a dumb work that even a machine can do that. Right. And so I love this idea of pattern aware extension, which is really what you're calling this now. And, and it kind of makes sense, but 
How does, tell us how that word pattern aware sort of applies to, and, and, and is that, that's not just for aspect orientation, is it? You're, you're doing more with post sharp now. Okay. So th there are really two, uh, two ways how you can think about, about patterns. Um, some patterns are repetitive enough so that a machine can completely implement them manually. And I would say that, um, for instance, for notify property changed, mm. uh, we are able to automate maybe 90%, 95% of this code. Yeah. So, and for this aspect of programming is great. There are other kinds of patterns where, um, you cannot automate with, with, um, um, with a machine, you still have a lot of, of uh, code to be written manually. Mm. Uh, however, if you have a large team, like suppose you have 200 developers and, and you are in the architecture team, you are responsible for the, the design of this code. Yeah. If, you if you decide that you have a um, um, business rule pattern, okay, and the pattern says that there should be a factory class, the business rule um, uh, um, should not have a public contractor. Instead, there should be a factory class. The factory class should be a MEV component. Mm. You have a pattern of a business rule. This is right. all how you want your 200 business rules to be implemented. Now, how you ensure that your whole team implement the business rule pattern the same way, even if it, there is still much uh, hand coding. So then you go into static analysis. Mm -hmm. So... It's not just aspect-oriented programming, it's also st static analysis. So actually, we have one, one objective, and it is to automate patterns as right. much as possible. And we have many enabling technologies. One enabling technology is aspect-oriented programming, mm -hmm. another uh, enabling technology is uh, static analysis, and another enabling technology is uh, dynamic, uh, dynamic analysis of the program execution. All and these aims into into pattern uh, pattern automation. Wow, that's very cool. You know, one of the um, signs that you should be thinking about using this tool uh, is if you find yourself in that situation where you're using base classes to implement functionality, right? And you get to that point where, oh, I need one of these and one of those, but I can't. Ha there is no multiple inheritance in C sharp. And it doesn't make sense for there to be multiple inheritance. It's, it's just sort of like a wake-up call that, oh, you know, maybe there's a better way to do what we want to do. Well, it doesn't yeah, really... avoid inheritance. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, you know, the, a lot of object-oriented software is still written using the inheritance model. But here, um, uh, like pattern, ori uh, pattern orientation doesn't really compete with... Uh, multiple inheritance or traits of these kind of features. Um, we are more talking of um, features that affects many methods. Right. For instance, if you think of logging, if you think of notify property changed caching, is not a feature that just a affects class. the class. Yeah, yeah, right. Exactly. You might want that. Yeah, on on certain properties and not on others. So you, that's why the attribute model, which is what you use, works great. And I've used PostSharp a couple of times for a couple of projects, and it just turned out to be a great tool. Yeah, and I had to do a little bit of implementation for exactly what I wanted it for. But it's just a, it was, it was, and this was back a few years ago, 
just a great baseline tool for me to get that done. Yeah. And so, so this started off as a free product and then you're charging for it just so in the, you know, full disclosure here, what's the status of the price of this thing? Okay. So, uh, it starts as a, as a free product. Mm -hmm. So there are, um, a set of, of, of free, free features, um, and also for for the new features, um, you have uh, so you can use all new features like okay. ready-made, notify property changed, up to up to a certain number of classes. Okay, which is currently ten classes per project, not per solution, okay. per project. And then from this, you need to you need to to buy a professional license. Okay, so the free product is free. It's not like time limit where or anything like that. You can use this for as long as you want. It's just a limited set of features. Exactly. The free product is uh, limited in features and limited in the number of usage of this feature. It is not time limited. We, we would never do that because uh, once you commit your code inside your source repository and you want to compile it um, um, like five years later, you don't want to bother with, with with license keys. Yep. Okay. So, uh, getting back to using PostSharp here, how does it work with uh, handling multiple threads? So, actually, I I figured out five five years five years ago. Um, I started to think about like handling multi-threading with patterns, and I started to talk about that at conferences. Then I I met Richard at. Uh, NDC London two years ago, and I had the same pitch. And then I became fed up by talking about that. And I started to implement that. <laughs> and that's basically what we did the last two years. Like, stop talking at conferences about how the world could be so better with uh, pattern-oriented multi-threading, but rather do it. So we did it, and it really took these, these, these two years. So the idea is that, like, let's Let's go back to like assembly versus, like, so assembly language versus C language or Fortran, basically. Okay. In assembly language, you need to address the memory uh, absolutely. You need to to have on a piece of paper. You need to 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 write and to allocate your memory, and then you enter the physical address of memory. This is how you write assembly. You are working working at a very low level of abstraction, but if you use a compiler not an assembler, but a compiler. The compiler is going to do that for you. You will use variable names. You don't need to, to care too much about uh, memory allocation. Yeah. And the result is that your brain is free from low-level problems. Right. Now, I, I think that today we have the same problem with multi-threading. We are using locks, events, concurrent queues or, or um, synchronized queues. And so this kind of low level primitives, and this is, this is very low level and or, or brain is not done to handle so many details at the same time. And so the complexity of multi-trading puts a bottleneck on what we can achieve. Yeah. So, and now if you look at, at how we make things simpler, actually we can raise the level of abstraction of everything and using threading design patterns. And we have threading design patterns. And you know, I didn't invent anything. For instance, immutable, this is a threading design pattern. Sure. Um, actor, freezable, uh, threadifine, 
Um, let's take, for instance, uh, trade-defined. So all WinForms or WPF classes are trade-defined. Just the design team at Microsoft chose trade-defined model for these classes. It just makes things so easier. And it's so important to think about trading in terms of design patterns that new languages have been designed around trading patterns. So immutable, it gave birth to functional programming. Actor gave birth to Erlang. So I'm maybe oversimplifying here, yeah. but the idea is that trading patterns are so important that uh, we build complete frameworks and complete languages based on that. So then I did the connection with, with Aspect Oriented and PulseSharp and said, well, we could actually provide implementations of these patterns for C-sharp and VB. And that's what we did during these, these two years and that we, we, we published uh, uh, in PulseSharp 4.2 was the, the real working implementation uh, last, uh, last December. Um, so basically, if you want a class to be immutable, that's a very simple example, you would add an immutable custom attribute on the class. And from that moment, you, you as the developer, you are safe that the class is immutable because if you make a mistake as the developer, you are going to have um, a build time exception or a deterministic runtime exception. Mm -hmm. So, because immutable is not just about having read-only fields. Immutable means that, okay, because it's okay to modify a field from a method if this method is not invoked after the constructor has, exit, uh, has exited. Mm -hmm. And it's not enough to have a read-only field if, if the value of this read-only field is mutable, okay? Mm. You, have a, you have a notion of parent-child relationship, and when you have an immutable child, uh, sorry, an immutable parent, the whole subtree should be Im uh, immutable too. Of course. Or it doesn't make sense. Right. So, so we actually implemented uh, these notions. We, we re-implemented re into C-sharp this notion of a parent-child relationship, wow. which is called aggregation in, in UML. And now, if as a developer you violate a rule, for instance, you modify the object after the constructor has exited, you will have a runtime exception. Great. That's, that's the easiest example. That is so cool. And, and how is it also implemented with attributes? This is implemented with attributes. And it, for, for these features, it just makes sense with attributes. Yeah. Uh, so what you would do, typically, you would add the attribute to the base class. Yeah. Um, cool. For That's instance, great. yeah, we, we did um, um, dog fooding. Uh, so we used uh, our post-sharp trading models for our own Visual Studio extension, mm. which is a moderately large project of uh, 25,000 lines of code, multi-threaded. And actually, we figured out that we assigned trading models to whole families of classes. So we said, okay, now all our... UI classes, you know, WPF forms, controls, pages, and so on. All are going to be trade-affine. There wow. is no, met no method in a WPF classes that is going to execute on another thread. And it just simplifies thinking about multi-threading. This is amazing. You so, just and I presume you want to use one pattern for a given... Like, you do not want to mix patterns within a piece of software, then. Well, within an application, yes. 
but not within a class. Right. Or within a, a given working group. Like it could be a group of classes that have to interplay with each other. I would not want to try and mix threading patterns there. Exactly. So, so what, what, fi- what we figured out is that the, our default threading model became immutable. Right. And, but for the UI classes, the default threading model and the only threading model actually became threadifying. But now we had classes that had to be passed between background services and UI. They could not mm-hmm. be threadifying. They couldn't be immutable. These classes became reader writer synchronized. Interesting. Yeah. You know what uh, occurs to me, and I'm, I'm sure everybody else who's listening too, it's like you, when you made PostSharp, you had this world of possibilities that was open to people, and you handed it to them as a basic tool, and the implementation of using it just became too overwhelming. And so you're like, okay, but you can use it for this, or you can use it for that. And instead of having samples, you just sort of integrated all these patterns into the product. So now it's just, it's so much more than um, a simple aspect-oriented programming framework. Now you've got all this power in it, in the product that wasn't there before. Exactly. So, and by doing that, it, it was actually very, very humbling because, you know, I've, I've been, I've been working on Postgres for 10 years and I, yeah. I built some self-confidence at, at some point. And then I realized that it's not so easy to build good aspects that actually work. <laughs> uh, uh, great. Right when the aspect tool builder says, you know, yeah. building good aspects <laughs> is hard. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and then we started coding, for instance, like notify probability changed. It sounds easy. Yeah. That sounds easy. Now, if you do it and you really think about that, you will put like months of work, months. But this is another thing that I, you know, uh, I've, I've used in a base class, right? Created a base class that does all that stuff. But now you're sort of wasting your, your base classes, which could have been used for business logic or anything else on, you know, a feature of, you know what I'm saying? Like, it doesn't make sense as a base class, but that was the only place we could put it where it was out of the way without using AOP. Yes, well, that's that's one aspect of the aspect. Yeah. Now, if, you, if you think <laughs> of notify property changed, the easy part of the work is to add the method on property changed. Mm-hmm. Now, the difficult part of the work is that you need to go to all your derived classes and you look at the fields or the yeah. properties, and then you look at all methods. And whenever, and so, no, first you look at properties and you map the properties to fields. Then you go to methods, and whenever a method changes a field, you need to think about what which properties are affected by your change in this right. field. Yeah, this is what you are doing manually when you are coding notify property yep. change. It's but the this is not something. Plum- it's the epitome of plumbing code. Yeah. And this is the the main uh, benefit and added value of, of a pattern-aware compiler. This is to do this work of understanding your handwritten code, analyzing the relationships between fields and properties, and saying, oh, you, you, you modified this field. It mm. means that this property is being affected. Yeah. In the even threading is really plumbing, actually. Totally. It- it it feels because it's because it's so rocket sciencey. You want it to be special, but it's not business logic. 
Nope, certainly isn't. Yeah, not it's only not that, important at all to that. So, I mean, you've taken on a really hard aspect, could you helping us control our threading models? But I'm not unhappy about that because writing threading code sucks. I'm very happy with the async await model. Um, but does the async await model not work in all threading situations? I mean, of course it doesn't, but, but, uh, you know, there are situations where you do need to spin up a thread and you do need to kill it when it's done. You do need to know when a certain pulse has been set in the thread. And, um, yeah, there, I guess there are places where you need it. But so async await is a different problem. So async await, it allows you, to um, solve the problem of, of like waiting for things that take waiting a long time. for yeah. things exactly so yeah it's not uh, like a not like spinning up a background process and letting it go yeah but so the problem that we solve with trading models is basically a problem of uh, thread synchronization that yeah. means uh, making sure that different threads uh, don't access shared resources at the same time. Right. This is this is the problem solved by trading models such yeah. as immutable, freezable, reader writer synchronized. Now, async the problem this solve is to have multiple threads. So actually, async is the thing that creates the problem of data races. Yeah. Hey, Richard. Yeah, buddy. Guess what time it is? Uh, I must be that happy time again. Yeah. It's time to shut the Arctic Theater's backstage door. Guess why? It got too cold. The actors are frozen. Oh, uh, no. No, stop it. <laughs> uh, uh, threading pattern puns. <laughs> Come on, Gail, did you get that or you just don't think it's funny? <laughs> you didn't understand I the think problem. I got it, but you know, um, first. It's, that's stupid. <laughs> my... <laughs> He's like, yeah, I got it. No, I, I got it, but you know, you know I'm I, Eastern European, and we know when we hear something dumb. <laughs> I was I was considering doing a remark before the the the, uh, the start of the talk, telling you know, please don't make jokes with me, or if you tell jokes, tell them slowly. <laughs> okay, I or, got it. <laughs> or tell them with a French accent. Right, it's the ESL thing. Anyway, nice. it's time to give away a music to code by complete collection. We're up to 12 now. By the way, number 12 is free. I don't know if nice. everybody got that, but I wanted to put out a free track and just let people have it. So number 12 is in the collection, but the price didn't change and it's free. So what is music to code by? It's a set of 25 minute Pomodoro sized quiet and groovy instrumentals specifically designed to promote focus. It'll get you into a state of flow and keep you there. In hundreds, I would say thousands, yes, thousands of .NET Rocks fans are being more productive with Music to Code By. So see what all the fuss is about. Go to musictocodeby.net. All right, buddy. Who's our winner? Today's winner, Richard, is Sam Judson. Congratulations, Sam. Yeah. Golf clap for you. Golf clap for you, sir. It's been I, too long since we've done good studio golf clap. It could be ma'am could be samantha but all we know could is be. sam judson and uh just for being a member of the dotnet rocks fan club sam won the music to code by complete set 12 times 25 minutes of music for focusing and getting work done and if you don't know what we're doing go to dotnet rocks.com click on the big get free stuff button answer a few questions and join the dotnet rocks fan club we have thousands of members all over the world 
And every show, we like to give away stuff from our sponsors. And every December, we give away a $5,000 technology shopping spree to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But you got to sign up to win. Okay, Gail, it's your turn. If you had $5,000 to spend on technology, sir, what would you buy? Okay. Well, I was thinking about this question during the whole fall, and I delayed my application to like talking with you guys until the end of December, mm-hmm. and the question is still <laughs> there. Yeah. Okay, but so I've been giving that a second thought, and I think I'm really... How do you say that in English? Audiophile or audiophile? Audiophile, yeah. Audiophile, audiophile. And I think I would uh, invest into a multi-room audiophile system uh, to have great music everywhere, at least on the on the ground floor, like kitchen and living room and and, uh, and sleeping room. That, that would be nice. Mm. Mm. The great thing about audio systems is you could spend as much money as you want to spend. Yeah, exactly. You can you can make something work for a few hundred dollars, or you can spend a hundred thousand dollars. Like it's totally, you know, Full you can blow oil? ten grand on a cable <laughs> if you want. Mm-hmm. If you exactly. really want to part with your money, somebody's willing That's to take right. it. They'll they'll sell you a directional Ethernet cable. That's right. The electricity goes in one direction, <laughs> only <laughs> one way. <laughs> I'm sorry. Yes. Oh, what a bunch of snake oil out there. But yeah, you're oh right. The, 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 the law of diminishing returns applies to audio. That's for sure. Yeah. Exactly. You'd spend. Yeah. But if you're a lover of classical music and Gail, you clearly are, you know, you care about the details in your music. Too. I would so spend more money, money. I would spend more money treating the room that I listen to it in than on the actual system. Yeah, I'm with you. Yeah. Really? Fine. Yeah. Absolutely. And the funny part is, a lot, a lot of that sound control stuff, the baffles and things, they're just not that expensive. Fiberglass, such a difference. 12, 12 inch thick, fluffy fiberglass works best. Or you can get fiberglass panels, cover them with burlap, little hot glue on the other side, hang them up, maybe paint on them. Yeah, that's all it takes. Well, yeah. actually, I think uh, well, I think we're we're not too bad with that. Like, remember the five kids things. So when I redesigned the house, I put uh, noise absorption uh, roofs. Yeah. Um, nice. So Ceilings. I think we are not too bad. Very good. That's cool. Um, PostSharp was open source when it first came out. And are you still, op- is it still open source? Well, it's obviously, I don't know. What's the status of your open sourceness? So it's, it's no longer open source. And I think five years ago, it was the beginning of being a commercial company. Um, so... The story of PostSharp is that it, it started as a, as a side project, uh, in my evenings. Um, and I did that during, uh, I think two years. And basically I gave it one, one hour of coding a day, maybe one and a half hour in the evening. But then while I was commuting, I didn't have a notebook at the time. Notebooks were still quite expensive. And so instead of coding, I was designing and just thinking about the algorithms and data structures and so on. So I was doing two hours of like in-brain design for one hour of coding. Okay, so this this lasted two years. And then, um, well, I got some um, some opportunities to do uh, consulting instead of being a full-time employee. Mm-hmm. And then I started being so working half-time 
on the on the open source project. So actually, during I think it lasted two or three years, I was working half of my paid time was actually not paid. It was invested into this open source project. Yeah, and the project became successful, and the half time just was not enough uh, to 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 cope with uh, like feature requests and support and so on. So, well, we 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 took the decision to to create a company around that. And I remember at, at this time, I felt almost like obliged uh, toward users to actually make this project working and give it a commercial structure because otherwise I would just burn out and 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 uh, and the project would would uh, disappear as the other projects did before and so from that you know it's uh, evolved from a from a hobby project two hours a day to uh, to a company and now, now we are uh, like 10 people here wow and and obviously in five years you've come a long way I mean there's a lot more code in here and so forth it's really sort of an interesting philosophical discussion here about whether op- making it an open source project that people contribute to freely makes it a safer bet as a library than it being a productive business that keeps a bunch of people employed. Um, I think there is a lot of a lot of ideology in this discussion, and mm-hmm. um, and I think you know what. What you mentioned here is that you know there is the, the ideology versus the pragmatism. Um, I think being open source it gives you a huge marketing benefit, and by by the day that we start being open source, uh, we stop being the, the like the favorite uh, dog, basically. Um, you you made I, some people unhappy, I'm sure. Why can't I have everything I want for free? <laughs> right. But what you what you got for free as an open source project back back uh, seven years ago, uh, this this was marketing fame and speaking slots, and this is huge. If you need to pay for the same thing, mm. uh, you will need to spend a lot of money. And um, so this was great. But now, from a point of view of development and producing the software, by the time that I decided to make the the software uh, commercial. Uh, less than one person of the code was contributed. So right. what I did is that I rewrote this code. So I I, I owned uh, 100% of the rights, and I could change the license. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it sort of made the point that open source was not supporting PostSharp. Hmm. So the only way it's going to get done is if you do it. And you, you know what it reminds me of is Service Stack, Demis Bellet. Yeah. You know, same thing. It was an open source project for ages, never went anywhere. And when he finally committed to doing it full time and making a living from it, it's become wildly successful. Mm. Yeah, exactly. There, there was one one miss back, back uh, seven, ten years ago, and it was open source plus services. And I think this was a myth because this is a win-lose scenario. Is you as the user lose that you have a problem? I will win that I will provide help. This is a win-lose scenario and it didn't work as a business model. Like, right. And win-win sure means it worked that- for some people, but it doesn't work for everybody. It depends on the product too. Yes. I mean, one of the reasons yeah. I could see you had a tough time getting contribution is like, dude, this is hard coding mm-hmm. doctrine, building the infrastructure to keep us protected from threading to, to implement patterns. I, I don't know that I could make a contribution to this. 
it takes months to to get a developer productive on the team, and on the sure. on the most complex components, it it takes even more. Yeah. And and it takes deep deep thinking to do stuff like this. It, it, you know the, the the art here is you do this heavy lifting so that me and my day to day job building you know enterprise apps doesn't have to. You know, right at the beginning of the show we were talking about how do you know when you need this? It's like right. well, suppose you're on an architecture team. Well, right there, yeah. If you have an architecture team, you're getting ready to build a framework. Yeah. And I can't tell you how many organizations I've been involved in in exactly the situation. We've got we've got enough developers and enough projects going that we're trying to centralize certain key behaviors of the way we like to build things, stuff we want to look to look like, and you end up writing the framework yourself, and it eats up all of your brain cycles, and it becomes the dependency on every project you build on. You're now the reason nobody can deliver software. Mm-hmm. Exactly. You, know, you want to externalize this. There are only so many Gale Fritures in the world. <laughs> yeah, in fact, right. I'm pretty sure there's only one. There are a few ones, but you know, you count them on one or two hands. So um Yeah. Yeah. And 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 I it's like I feel like you're using your skill in the best way possible, focusing on this so that we don't have to. Exactly. How has uh the new Microsoft landscape, you know, an open, freer, more uh you know, less monolithic Microsoft culture affected you guys. So for us, this this is being currently a very tough period um, because uh, for us it means that we had to do a lot of investment to support new new platforms. So just look at the last the last two years. So we got uh, Windows Phone, we got WinRT, uh, we got uh, Core CLR, we got Roslyn. Mm. Um, now we got universal windows apps. So actually there is, there is a splitting of the platforms that we need to support. And, um, the total, the total usage of .NET is not increasing yet. So Microsoft is fighting about the erosion of the .NET ecosystem and like it's doing many, many different things. But if we look at the, effort that we put into supporting Windows Phone and the actual usage of that, this, this was a loss of time for, uh, for, for us. Mm. And so now we are, we are in, a, um, in a period where we need to do much investments to support the, the new Microsoft stack, but the benefit will come, will maybe come in a few years. And, um, and so, this is this is quite uh, tough to need. So we need to make decisions. We cannot afford to do everything and to support everything that that uh, that Microsoft does now. Mm-hmm. So that's that's for the that's for the negative. Now for the positive, uh, since Roslyn has been made open source, we uh, we've been using uh, a few technologies from from this effort. Mm-hmm. And so actually we were able to uh, increase support uh, for uh, like Visual Basic to impl- and also to implement some new features better. And that would not have been possible uh, before uh, before Rosin making open source. So, mm-hmm. you know, there is, there is some, there is, there are some benefits for us. Um, there are a, a lot of difficulties to keep pace and balance. Like, should we satisfy .NET users who still make a huge, huge ma- 
majority of the .NET user base? Mm -hmm. Or should we focus on the um, on the new technologies? And and well, I think the the last the last two years we invested too much on the new frameworks, and the um, the result was that we actually neglected the uh, the the current user base. This was Postgres 4, uh, Postgres 4 4.1, supporting the new Visual Studio, supporting WinRT property, and so on. And then uh, we lost customers. Yeah. And we got a like the big the big customer, uh, like writing an email and telling all these things that that we actually neglected. And we said, well, yes, where did our time go? We we went to support in Windows Phone, which was not a concern for these teams having two hundred developers because they don't right. support Windows mm-hmm. Phone. Mm-hmm. Well, if you have two hundred developers, you're still not up to one phone. So right, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> easy to Did pick I say on. that loud? That's not easy right. to pick on. That's for sure. Yeah, yeah, but it, yeah, it's absolutely an interesting. You know, you end up in a political battle in some respects. Mm. Yeah, and so as um. As a company in the Microsoft ecosystem, we we need to you need to make a balance before uh, between uh, keeping uh, Microsoft Enterprise customers happy, which are our yeah. our main customers, uh, and I think they are being being a bit neglected by Microsoft currently. And but on the other side, if we make Microsoft happy, they maybe maybe you know. Uh, like blogging about what we are doing and be more willing to to like like participate in our success. And there is always this this uh, this dilemma: uh, who should we please? Yeah. When you were a kid, Gail, were you uh, into like puzzles and you know brain busters and things like that? No, never, never. I'm I never did puzzles. Uh, really. I I never did games actually. Uh, I did Lego, uh-huh. and then I switched to uh, electronics during very very little time. I did a lot of reading when I was ten. Yeah, and then at age of eleven, I I found programming and never stopped. But you but were an, you were an introverted kid though, and are, do you still consider yourself an introvert? Yes, definitely. And actually, I learned I learned much about that and uh like you know i realize what are the strengths and weaknesses of being an introvert mm. and the interesting point is that now in the company we we are building the company around this awareness that like we are introverts we are not afraid of telling that and and we are just building the company culture uh, based on that so not a lot of trust falls at PostgreSQL. Excuse me. <laughs> trust falls. You don't do a lot of the trust falls. You know what I, that fall is. Fall backwards into somebody's arms. Into somebody's arms. Yeah. yeah all no. of that sort of. No, no, no. Extroverted team building stuff. No. But I mean, is don't. it sort of indicative of the the software that you guys are building too? I mean, it it's plumbing stuff. It's low level. It's bit twiddly. And introversion probably works a lot for you guys, huh? That that works a lot, and and uh, and all all developers uh, on the team they they started programming in in childhood. I mean, one started at right. eight, and all the guys in the team are this way, and we know it. And we actually designed the the 
the company processes for that. And because it's 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 public, so we just we just say, okay, you know, we are introverts. It's it is our strength and and, and this is our weakness. But you cannot you cannot remove the weakness without removing the strength. So we are just coping with that. For instance, well, I, I, I think it's the whole idea that introversion is a weakness seems kind of insane. It is what it is. It's like, and I have two hands, right? I wish I had four hands, but I don't. Yep. Right. Here, here's an example. So um, we in the company, like me and developers, so we tend to be very deep uh, um uh, involved with uh, with what we are doing with the task and forget about time, forget about the surrounding u- universe. Um, and this has this has benefits when 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 you need to instrument the the state machine, the async state machine, so that you are able to to like add some behaviors when when there is no wait and so on. So you mm. need to go very very deeply into the compiler, uh, um, the compiler like inner words. Uh, so it's normal that you completely isolate yourself. And but no, this is the fact of how your brain is working. But now the company has other concerns too. That we need we need to pay you. That means that there are time constraints because time in mo- time is money. So we have time time uh, constraints. So now sure. just by the fact that that we are able to. Um, talk openly about this conflict between uh, being introvert and completely losing notion of time. But on the other side, there is this need of tracking time. So we actually managed to to uh, to create a system where uh, uh, we can handle the conflict without uh, being nasty or or. Um, being bad, basically, mm. we we solved, we address the conflict positively, and developers know that it, it is important to add their time to to the time to uh, to the time tracking system, and uh, uh, the also what we did, and I think it's it's very important in a in a team of of highly talented people is that uh, the the scrum master has no power so it, it is not a power uh, a power function at all hmm. uh, it is it is done by by uh, by uh, Iveta who uh, started as a, as an administrative assistant is, and now does like project assistant and, and project management and all um, all um, like supporting uh, projects and marketing projects but sh- she's not the boss yeah and we work we work uh, cooperatively on that you mentioned uh, in in your bio that you've been teaching yourself to play the piano and you're interested in baroque music and classical music and i don't know if you know this but music to code by was based on science that um, baroque music between 1680 beats per minute what is uh, was used in a study of um, students in math class, and when they were listening to it, they did much better and they could focus a lot better. And I wonder if uh, that, what, what you think of, I mean, a lot, it seems like every day somebody says to me, yeah, there seems to be something to this whole musician slash programmer thing. What do you, what's your take on it, and how does it help you? Uh, to me, it 
it helps uh, regulating emotions, principally. Um, and uh, it helps, especially Baroque music, it really helps reaching higher level of, of uh, spirituality. Mm. Um, and I really like uh, religious Baroque music. Ah. Um, and it allows to have a, a different view on life, on life problems. I don't really listen to music uh, during coding, actually. Mm -hmm. It's more... I don't listen to music as, as a background activity. I listen to music as a full-time activity. I, yeah. I don't even read or... or You're engaged um, when you listen. Yes, engage. And so, um, talking about introversion, uh, uh, one year and a half ago, uh, someone told me, well, you guys look out, you know, you have bad body synchronization, but guys like you, they, they have some talent in music. So I said, okay, I'm going to try this. And uh, so I tried piano uh, to teach myself piano. And there is there is something that I find amazing in uh, teaching myself an instrument is that at the beginning of each lesson, there is something I cannot do. Like my fingers won't do the pattern. They just won't play mm, it. Yeah. And one week later, they will. it will work. And there is nothing That's to cool. study. Like there is no theory about that. It's just that you need to practice and you acquire the skill. And it's a really nice, nice lesson about like how how to acquire skills because it takes practice. It takes effort. It, it doesn't take theoretical study like in university or freezing msdn.microsoft.com. Hmm. It takes uh, it takes like in the beginning it is unpleasant when you you learn a new trick, which is yeah. like, like uncomfortable, and then you get it. Right. And every week, the same cycle. This is great. And it's just no substitute for practice, right? Like, there's no way around that. Exactly. Yeah, that's right. And I think it teaches something about any kind of learning, is that it always hurts in the beginning because you don't know it. Just that you... And prints and progressively... No, if you accept a bit of learning, you are going to have more fun later because you are going to be able to play more. And yeah. I, I think the same is true with all kind of learning. And the key is to balance now how much learning you want, how much hurting you accept for yourself, and how much fun then you right. will give, how much re reward. And if you take too much reward, too much playing for fun, you no longer learn new, new tricks. Yeah, amen. That's uh, very astute. So how often do you practice and how much? I would say three times a week, three times a week during w working days. And then during the weekends, I would say two to three hours a day. So I saw a study and I will post a link to it in the show notes that said um, putting people under a various forms of brain scanning, PET scanning and CAT scanning and things, MRI, they found they were looking at different activities that people were doing and how much the brain lights up, right? And listening to music, the brain lit up quite a lot. Uh, and, I, you know, quite what's quite a lot? More than normal, more than reading, more than art or, or anything like that. But it was, in particular, practicing learning 
how to play an instrument where virtually all parts of the brain lit up like a Christmas tree. Wow. Yeah, it was really astounding. And I'll, uh, like I say, we'll put the, a link to it in the, but yeah, it's pretty amazing. Yeah, there's another activity I found very difficult for me that was to, to learn Czech language. Oh. I, I just ah, found myself yeah. stuck. Yeah, there's something to that. I don't know if it's correlation or causation, but people who, and it's pretty obvious, right, when you say it like this, but people who know several languages tend to be really freaking smart. (laughs) 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 I don't know if it's a reverse correlation or whatever, but uh, there's something to that. Well, Gail, what's next for PostSharp? I mean, it's, it's having great success and that's awesome. But what, what's on your to-do list? So now we are working on PostSharp 4.3 and this is the release where we listen to enterprise customers and we fix the things we neglected during the last years when we were chasing new features. Mm. So, um, for instance, we went on the NuGet bandwagon and enterprise customers don't like it. When you have 200 projects in your in your uh, solution, you don't like NuGet. Yeah. So we will have uh, an alternative to NuGet. We will also improve the debugging experience. Um, we are going to improve some like some little little improvements in many features. So for the tree is a quick win feature. Yeah. Okay. And this is this is coming now. Uh, I just uh, published. Uh, two blog posts at the time of recording so so maybe by the time of listening it's going to be a bit more so we are releasing uh, new previews on a three week basis at the end of each iteration great well I wish you lots of success it's a great product always has been and uh, also just very impressed with your uh, with your ability to explain it and to to get things done it's great stuff thank you that was very nice to be on the show All right, and we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Pwop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got transmitter band by the FCC. Yes, I'm a dog.